longer stuff or or even just the shorter easy stuff which is the, the bulk of our training really uh was fine uh, but the high intensity stuff like those intervals the, the 10 by 1k is like that's the difference between being uh you know a elite olympic level and being like a middle of the pack junior uh nash like at you know type of level it was just night and day Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin and I'm joined as always by Stephanie Gaskell. How are you, Steph? I'm good, Alan. I'm uh, enjoying the sunshine at the moment. Yeah, and you got back into the lab finally. Yes, yes. Long day at the lab, um, but it it was exciting. It was fun to be there. Yeah, no participants, just playing with samples yeah no participants playing with samples um a long day i think from nine till close to six um and um and as we know you have to concentrate so much because the like a little loss in concentration can basically screw the whole thing up and i i almost did that and you lose all your blood samples that you spent so much time collecting from athletes. Exactly, exactly. Yep. So, yeah, yep. make sure you're on your game. Yeah, for sure. And a big congratulations also to you. New uh, paper published in uh, the journal Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise yeah. um, looking at runners running at nighttime versus daytime. Tell us just quickly about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was um, part of – it's part of the PhD um, study. So – uh anecdotally we hear a lot of people experience gi symptoms in the evening in ultra endurance events so um we wanted to have a look at that because there's really um no current research that has had a look at you know the impact of you know if we exercise at night what's what's the impact on the gut is it different during the day and fuel oxidation so yeah, we had a bit of fun with, with that one and um, it was good to get those findings published. Maybe we'll probably chat about that in, in the future podcast. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. All right, so if you haven't heard the podcast before, uh, Steph and I are both researchers at Monash University in the area of sports nutrition, uh, working with primarily endurance athletes, so runners, cyclists and triathletes. Uh, we're both practitioners as well and been working with athletes of all, all shapes and sizes and levels for about 15 years now. So each week on the podcast, we're going to take a look at a particular question that people have that relates to running, cycling and triathlon nutrition. And it's sort of the common questions that people ask um, and, and often don't get, a, get a, you know, a straight answer for. So we'll break those down and sort of explain them to people, explain where there's context and nuance in the, the answers to those questions because there pretty much always is. Um, and then we'll attempt to answer it for you. So Episode one, Steph, we had a chat to Professor Louise Burke, uh, who's just recently finished up at the Australian Institute of Sport um, and is now uh, solely in her role at Australian Catholic University. And the question was, is low carb right for me? So this week, episode 1B, what's the B for? Uh, well, it's it's the second part for the same question. So we're going to revisit, is low carb right for me? But this time we're going to do it a bit differently. We're not going to talk to a, an expert scientist or researcher. We're going to talk to an athlete who's been involved with this. So, Steph, do you want to talk, uh, tell us all about who we're speaking to today? Yeah, yeah. So we want to get that athlete's perspective on on the experience. So we thought nothing better than getting an elite race walker involved in uh, that was involved in the supernova studies with Louise. So um, it's Evan Dunphy. Um, and so he's a Canadian race walker, 
he became really well known in the Rio Olympics in 2016. Um, so that was he placed fourth in the um, 50k race walk, um, and that was actually made pretty famous because in the last k of that race he got bumped off his um, stride by a Japanese athlete, um, and he was that athlete was actually disqualified. So Evan got handed the bronze, um, but then that decision was then overturned. Um, then Evan had time to actually appeal um, that, but he went back, he got some food into his gut after the race and he, he kind of had a look back at it um, and he decided that he didn't want to appeal that um, because he thought, you know, it doesn't really look like there's, there's that much in it. Um, so, so yeah, so that was, you know, that's a pretty good thing of Evan to, to do. So, um, he became one of the, a really popular athlete, um, after that. Um, but now Evan's back and he's, um, he's going for, for Tokyo Olympics in, in 2021. Um, and, um, it was back in December 2015 when Evan nailed a huge PB um, in a 50k race walk in Australia um, and he actually smashed the Canadian record by four minutes um, and he and that's when he then qualified for for Rio um, but it was only 10 days prior to that actual performance where he was at the AIS participating in this three-week um, supernova study um, so uh, we'll ask Evan about about his experience with that uh, so just so everyone has has a bit of a background um, supernova one involved 20 international olympic standard race walkers along with their training partners from it was from five different um, continents and they either followed a high carb diet a low-carb, high-fat diet or a periodised carbohydrate diet uh, for three weeks whilst they they lived and trained at the AIS. And um, Evan was one of the athletes on the low-carb, high-fat diet and so that's why we've got him here today to share his experience of, of the study and what it was like training and racing on that diet. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Supernova is the, the study that um, Louise Burke talked about last week in our interview with her, um, that, that she ran that study at the AIS and, and talked about the findings last week. But today, obviously, we get to hear from someone who was a participant in that study and, and not so much, you know, the, the raw numbers of, of what low-carb, high-fat did to metabolism and performance mm. and all that sort of stuff. We've already heard that with Louise, but more, how does it actually feel? What foods do you eat? Do you en did he enjoy it? All those sorts of things. So the the more the practical nuts and bolts of, of low carb high fat diets. So it'll be a, a great insight from from Evan, which is fantastic. All right. Well, I think that's um, all we need to really do by way of introduction, Steph. So I think it's it's time to get into our discussion with Evan. Sounds good. Evan Dunphy, thank you very much for joining us on the Long Munch. How are you going? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to, to talk some nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess you uh, get used to eating a lot of nutrition with all the training that you do. Yeah, yeah. My, I Basically, for, for my event, it's just stuff as much down my gob as I can. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't worry too, too much about 
what it's made of, just get it in there. Yep. Fair enough. So the first question, um, obviously, you know, your background is, is race walking. So for the uninitiated, can you just give us a brief rundown on sort of, I guess, what the main differences would be between what you guys do in race walking and running uh, in terms of, you know, obviously there's a technical aspect. We don't need to get too much into that. But I guess what that means in, in practical terms, in terms of maybe training and, and possibly if, if you think there's any sort of differences in how you have to approach nutrition in race walking compared to, say, marathon running or something like that. Uh, yeah, so instead of a instead of a rundown, I'll give you a little bit of a walk down, I guess. Um, you know, for the uninitiated, I, I tend to just ex- describe race walking as simply just running with rules. Um, everything from a physiology standpoint is the exact same. Uh, we're just obviously going a little bit slower um, because of our technical constraints. So we have to have one foot on the ground and our knee has to be straight and we're we're judged and 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 watched throughout our races. So um, there's an added element, if you will, of sort of uh, technicality where you have to, you know, a marathon, if you, if you blow up and you can literally crawl across that finish line on all fours that you need to, and in race walking, you need to be a bit more, uh, careful, I guess, um, with, with how you, how you use up your energy stores. Um, but training wise, all of that stuff, it's, it's the exact same as you would for, for an ultra or for a marathon, um, lots of mileage, lots of, you know, on the slower end, that zone one mileage, and then maybe, 10 to 20% at kind of high intensity interval training. We'll tend to do a lot of like longer intervals. So uh, during the, during the supernova studies that we would do 10 by one K off of um, sort of six minute cycles was our go-to. That was our like testing workout each week. And and that's a pretty stock standard workout, sort of one K two K intervals type of thing. So um, yeah, running with rules um, and then everything else, you know, nutrition wise, it's probably a bit easier uh, for race walkers because you don't jostle your stomach so much. So we probably have a better uh, ability to to get fluids in and keep them in and, and fuel as well. So um, a lot of a lot of things with race walking, race walking that make it advantageous for nutrition. Racing on a loop, we race on a two a one or a two k loop, so plenty of opportunities to feed as well. So um, you know it adds to one of the reasons why we're perfect guinea pigs for for research like um, like Louise does is because. Um, the event lends itself so well to it. Yeah, and I guess I mean I guess a lot of people run for the you know recreationally at least you know for the the scenery and and that aspect of it. I guess race walking is a bit more niche in terms of you know people don't usually do it from a recreational standpoint. You're either doing it for for the racing or, or not. Um, so probably going around on a loop uh, doesn't fuss you guys quite as much as it might your recreational runners out there. Yeah, I, 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 I like to sell it as saying, you know, it's a, it's brilliant because from a spectator point of view, you can watch an entire 50K race unfold and watch the entire thing. You know, I've watched a, a quite a few marathons where, you know, I probably run 10K watching the marathon. You know, you're running from point to point to watch your friends come by and stuff, and, and you have to be pretty fit just to watch the race. Mm. Uh, race walking, you can just plop yourself in the middle of that course and watch them come by every couple of minutes and watch the entire race unfold. So from that point of view, it's great because you can line the you can line the course with spectators and and you know have all the support. I can you know at the Olympics or World Championships, my family's there. I get to hear them cheering for me every two or three minutes. Um, so from that point of view, it's awesome. And then uh, just as you touched on the recreation side, quickly, I mean, race walking has so many benefits. I, I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't do a quick plug for for race walking in general. Is just you know, people that are struggling with uh, 
with with running with knee issues or, or ankle issues and stuff, race walking is such lower impact, and you can still get that really high intensity workout in without having to really put that pounding on your body. So, you know, I, I see more and more people um, as they get exposed to me on the streets of my city, seeing me race walk, I see more and more people out there power walking and, and race walking and walking to the poles because they see it as being a more acceptable, I guess, or, or, or less ridiculous um, yeah. and get out there and give it a try. And once people try it, they kind of get hooked on it. Yeah, awesome. And there's actually my next question is sort of related to that. Do you find that because obviously there's the technical aspect of it that's a bit different to, to straight out running, does that mean you guys tend to tolerate a higher training volume or a lower training volume than, than a sort of traditional marathon runner might do? It, it definitely varies. Um, we have definitely time on feet is, a, is typically a bit higher uh, just because we're going slower. So, you know, you think, uh, say, an uh, average sort of elite marathoner would be doing their mileage at maybe four minutes per K, um, and we're maybe doing ours at five minutes per K. So uh, for every every 150K a week that the runners are doing, um, that would be, you know, 100 and or 180k, sorry, 180k for the runners would be 150k for for us for the same amount of time. So um, mileage might not be quite the same, but we we put you know similar time on feet, and we'll do 100 miles to to 200k a week um, when we're training for 50ks. Yep, awesome. Okay, and you know, obviously race walking is a, a bit more niche than distance running. So I'm curious, like, what got you into the sport? Yeah, I was. Uh, I've been doing it for a long time. You know, everyone's race walking origin story is, is quite unique and, um, and usually a quite good story. Cause as you say, it's not something that, you know, you don't grow up from a young age, uh, seeing posters of your favorite race walkers on the streets and, and, and aspiring to, you know, to be this when you grow up. But, uh, I started race walking when I was 10 years old. Um, I was the shortest kid in my class, red curly hair, big thick rim glasses. Uh, I absolutely love sport, but I was pretty rubbish at all of them. And, uh, one day I, I had just tried this little, we had a popsicle stick run at lunch where you, every lap of the field you get run, you get a popsicle stick and you turn them in at the end of the class and your teacher would record them as you chase milestones of running, you know, a hundred K throughout the year or something like that. And I went out there and I tried it that first day and, you know, there was, there was no balls to hit me in the face and break my glasses and all that stuff. So I, I was like, this is great. This is awesome. And I was, I could run the entire lunch hour without stopping. And, and so I was just pretty hooked. Um, to endurance stuff early on and we joined a track club my brother and I and a year later my brother had his appendix taken out and his high school coach aptly was like hey well while your stitches heal there's this weird thing called race walking don't really know much about it but like yeah maybe it'll like keep you fit and not pull on your stitches you you heal up you come back to running and you're you haven't missed a step and so he tried it went to his first race and finished on the podium in his first ever race there's probably only four kids in the race but as the younger brother I was like oh if he can do it how hard can it be? <laughs> went to my first ever race, saw the kid on the start line next to me, sort of saw me as the new kid, went, oh, you're new. What do you want to do? And it was an 800-meter race, and I told him I wanted to break four minutes. He told me I was never going to do that on my first try. Or sorry, five minutes. He said I would never do that on my first try, and I went 457 and beat him. And little shortest kid in the class, Evan, with the red curly hair, was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. This is this is my thing now. Awesome. Awesome. So you got your, your brother's appendix to thank for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the remnants of it, at least. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Awesome. It's a great story. Um, so obviously, you know, this year's been a, a bit unusual. Uh, obviously, you know, you would have been busy training for Olympics and then that's been 
you know, postponed, we hope to, to run next year. Um, what, what's that meant for you in terms of, you know, training and goal setting and racing and all those sort of things? Like how's your 2020 ended up panning out? Yeah, Canada was the first team to to pull out of the Olympics back in March. Um, kind of set the precedent and said we're not. It's not safe. We're not sending a team. So, basically, from that day in in March, I've just kind of been like, all right. I next, I gotta shift my focus and be ready on August, whatever it is now, twenty twenty one. And it was almost like an immediate switch. There was no, there was no moment of like humming and hawing about like what could have been or what, what it was just kind of like okay like that's happened and now and I was really surprised by my reaction because I think normally or or in the past I would have been an athlete who had been like oh but what if oh like what could have been and I was just really impressed with uh, myself to be honest with it. it was just like a, a switch went off and said okay you do what you do this year and and the focus is now on next year and this summer I just put together a, a string of like really high mileage training with really no no end goal really it was just doing it because I was enjoying doing it and getting out the door and and put in 20 straight weeks of 150k and and was just kind of enjoying exercising really that's what I was telling you I was like I didn't feel like I was training I felt like I was just exercising and, and just being you know uh, just trying to be a fit healthy person rather than working towards some some big goal and it was it was nice it was a nice little refresh and you know now I'm taking a little bit of time off these next couple of weeks and then we'll get back into it with that that training aspect of chasing big goals and uh, you know trying to trying to find a way to get on that podium next year. Yeah, yeah, and certainly, I mean, people I've spoken to, there's been a massive, massively mixed response in terms of the postponement of the games, and I'm sure you've seen this with with other athletes, you know as well. That you know, some have have just taken it in their stride like you. Some have said, "Oh, great, you know, a bit of downtime for a change," and uh, you know, others have have really struggled to cope with it. Uh, you've seen quite a few people retire as a result of it and things as well. So, um, yeah, it's been a really mixed bag, I think. Yeah, I've I've been really lucky because I genuinely generally and genuinely don't have anything else uh, in my life this is kind of this is kind of all I got so uh, it was a lot easier for me I, I feel for my friends and my teammates that have you know families and and guys you know all of the my top competitors uh, are a bit older than me and the guys that were looking to you know get on the podium um, a lot of them this was gonna be their last kick of the can and they were gonna move on to new to new things and that year delay really sets them back in their whole you know other priorities list and I was like I I got nothing else for the next foreseeable future. So one year delay here, just does not, not a lot of skin off my back. So I framed it as a positive and, and as an advantage mm. as much as I can. Yeah. And, you know, potentially advantage going into next year as well, having, you know, having that, that mindset, which is great. Um, so, so Evan, you were involved um, as a participant in the study we talked about last week with Professor Louise Burke, the supernova study that was done at the Australian Institute of Sport back in, I think it was mid to late 2015 that you were down there in, in Canberra. So obviously you're on the other side of the world. How did it come about that you found yourself in Australia participating in a, a research study? Yeah, so Brent Balance, uh, famed race walking coach in Australia, um, coach of Jared Talent, who's won four Olympic medals and um, and, and Brent was coaching him for a, for a large portion of that. Um, he would always organize a camp. And uh, I remember my teammate, Nyaki Gomez, and I, we stumbled upon Brent by accident in 2009 at a race in, in Mexico. It was Nyaki and I's first time ever traveling without a coach. And 
we genuinely had no idea what we were doing and we were going to warm up at the course and we had all our stuff and we didn't really want to leave it. And we saw this guy holding the stopwatch and we wandered over to him and just sort of said, Hey, like, can we leave our stuff next to you and keep an eye on it? And he begrud- begrudgingly said yes. And, um, we got talking to him and, and found out he was an Australian. Like, Oh, we'd love to come there one day. And he's like, yeah, like walk Olympic A standard and then you guys can come over. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he, he softened up a little bit a couple years later. And, and in 2011, my teammate Naki went over and, uh, I followed a year later in 2012 to be part of some high altitude live high train low studies that we were, do- that, we, that Brent was doing up in Threadbow and just connected with the guys and, and sort of formed this bond with the, the group that went down there. And pretty much since then, we've tried to go back every year and be part of different studies. And they make it so, so easy. And the AIS was such a great resource to do either you know altitude studies or beetroot studies, whatever it was, just get over there, be guinea pigs, and get a chance to train with some of the best guys in the world and, and take advantage of, of what we can do by working together. And so that was really the, the environment that, that we sort of fell into. Um, and Louise... You know, was able to capitalize on on some of that as well, and, and it was such a big part in, um, you know, being bringing those people together and, and bringing the research together. So um, we lucked out for sure. Mm, yeah, and it's it's quite. Um, I mean, I guess people tend to think of you know people training for Olympics from different countries around the world. Then you know, a lot of people have this kind of preconceived idea oh, that these guys wouldn't talk to each other. They'd be like. <laughs> you know, running around behind each other's backs saying this and that and the other and certainly not going to go and train together. So, um, yeah, it's it's quite a, an interesting, you know, scenario where everyone is happy to train together and, and work together to sort of improve the whole group rather than, you know, try and be all secret squirrel behind each other's backs. Yeah, and that was really the way we framed it. In 2012, especially, Jared was was looking to you know he wanted to win olympic gold and there's not a lot there's not a ton of guys that can train with you when you're that when you're at that level and Inyaki was someone who could push him and who could you know keep him company in these training sessions and you just we knew that at that point in time we weren't going to be better than jared so we were only going to benefit from being around him and he was only going to benefit from having some training partners that could push him. And, and so it was just every, everyone benefited. And, and same in 2016, I felt like, you know, Jared and I did so many training sessions together where we, where we pushed each other to the, to the bitter end in our 40 K long walks and stuff. And, you know, my performance in Rio wouldn't have been nearly what it was if not for him. And, 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 you know, I, I will without, without his, uh, <laughs> his consent, I will say the same for him. I don't know if, if he would have had the same performance if, if we hadn't been training together. So we, we really do help each other. And the race walking community is so small that, um, you know, you need that camaraderie because you can't be nationalistic about it. If you want training partners, you've got to look elsewhere. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, so in our last episode, um, when we spoke to Louise about the, the three different diets that was part of supernova, um, you know, one being low carb, high fat, one was periodizer, one was high carb. She mentioned that each of um, the athletes were able to choose what type of diet they were going to to follow. Um, so I think both Alan and I are really interested in what made you decide to go on the low carb, high fat bandwagon. Yeah. Uh, so my background is in kinesiology. I, I had my, my did my undergrad in in kin, and so I. I had a very vague idea of what the diet consisted of and, and what its you know, 
what his proponents said it was what it could do. And mm -hmm. I was just really curious. And I kind of figured, well, what's the worst that happens? Like it's November, 2015. It's probably not going to kill me. I'll, you know, if it's awful, I'll still be fine come February. I'll still have, you know, six, seven months to the Olympics and, and, and literally just sort of thought, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And why not? I have this opportunity in front of me. Why not um, take it and see? And that was, that was really, that was really it. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, and did you at the time see any other athletes that were kind of dabbling um, in in that style of eating? Or? No, no, it didn't. I mean, even now, I don't. I couldn't mm. tell you any athletes that that follow that diet. And and what I learned very quickly was that anyone who said that they followed a high carb or a high a high fat low carb diet really weren't um mm. it was it became very very evident very quickly of like what you see people say on twitter about oh i'm you know i i'm high fat and here's what i eat and you're like uh you know that's not how this works um we learned that really quickly it was really interesting yeah yeah and so i guess in in terms of that in relation to that can you fill us in on like what how were you eating what did it involve for you yeah um we were, and we were so like, the other reason to do this was that I would, could never endeavor to do this kind of thing on my own. Um, you know, just the, the sheer, well, cooking knowledge, first of all. Yeah. Um, but then it's the willpower to do it. I would, you know, without having every single calorie counted and, and accounted for, no way I'd have the self-control to, to follow something like this. So, mm -hmm. and we were also so lucky to have these amazing chefs and dietitians at the AIS that put together some incredible menus and, and stuff that just was insanely delicious. We were getting, um, you know, we'd have, we'd have, um, you know, we'd have our pasta night where, where we'd have our, um, zucchini pasta with our super rich fatty carbonara sauce. And we'd have our, our pizza nights with, um, cauliflower base for the pizza, just shoved without like you know, three avocados on top of that pizza. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, a couple, maybe like one or two pieces of salami or something like that. Um, but they like, they went above and beyond to, to give us food that was like, Appealing. was more than just a handful of nuts every now and then, mm. uh, mm -hmm. which was really lucky, but there was still, you know, we had breakfast before training sometimes would be, you know, here's a hard boiled egg, eat this and then go and do 40 K. Um, yeah. it, it was, it, there was there was literally some days where it was like uh, Evan, your fats, um, your ratios are a little bit off. Here's a little sachet of butter. Uh, can you can you eat this? <laughs> it was like okay, and we would just go and we take the tin foil off the top, pop it in the microwave for five seconds, take it out, take the shot of butter, and and that was it. Was like all right, it's for science. Like if if you you know if you tell me this, then I'll I'll do it. Um, yeah. So there was some craziness, but a lot of it was just like really well put together, real, well thought out meals. And I'm interested, like, obviously you did that for three weeks. Towards the end of the third week, were you still enjoying that style of eating or were you getting a bit over it by then? Uh, you definitely hit, we hit a comfort spot. I think the first week was a bit of an adjustment. Second week, you kind of really hit your groove and, and it was a weekly menu. So it was, you know, we only had the same thing three, maybe four times max. Um, but then by that third week, it was a little bit like, okay, like this is ending soon, right? <laughs> like we get to come off of this. Um, mm. but, uh, 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, the, I think the funniest one we would have, because we would go every once, once a week, Louise would treat us all to a movie. So it was her shout. We'd, she'd take all the athletes out, all the dietitians, all the staff out, and we'd go to a movie and, and, uh, you know, we couldn't go and buy our popcorn. So she would weigh out little baggies of popcorn for us. So we'd go in the movie theater and, you know, all the high fat guys would have this little baggie of about five or six kernels of popcorn that we would get to eat for this two hour movie. Um, you know, it was very thought thoughtful, but, uh, <laughs> little use in, in practice. Mm. <laughs> it would have been hard because, um, like, I, I was there for one part of the of the study and I saw, you know, you guys were, you're dining together. So, you know, you're potentially right sitting across from someone that gets to dig into this big plate of pasta while you are having a zucchini <laughs> bolognese, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that was like, so when in November 2015 for that first kind of supernova zero or whatever, whatever it was that yep. we had originally planned on having each of the meals be separate and uh -huh. each come group by group. And yep. because meals were like our big social thing, that was like the, yes. that was our like big social time. And we'd end up spending like two hours at meals just to kill time and hang out. Yeah. And so they just kind of scrapped the idea and brought us all together. Yeah. And it was certainly tough. Past the night was by far the worst because you're sitting there with this tiny little bowl and these guys got a heaping pile of pasta and you know in your head that you were eating the same amount of calories as the person beside you and like you know that your brain knows that but you're just looking at going there's no way this is the same like there's no way that that I'm going to be full from this and it's I'm you know, you're done it in two minutes and you have another hour watching this guy you know, shove the last bits of pizza down his down his or uh, pass it down his throat because he can't take another bite. And you're just like, uh, mm. that's all my food for the rest of the day. <laughs> like, that's that's it till tomorrow. <laughs> and it was just that that did be tough. Like being full because like we take so much, you know, so much of our our um, our cues for being full or that are the volume. Mm. And so that was definitely early on. It was just like I've never felt full and. Mm. Um, as much as I try to convince myself that no, you're getting enough calories, you're getting enough calories. It's just, I couldn't convince my stomach that it was happy mm. enough to, to, to let, to leave me alone. One of the things that often people say with keto is one of the big advantages, I guess, more from a weight loss perspective than an athletic perspective is that, you know, your hunger is, is suppressed. Um, it sounds like you didn't experience that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I personally didn't, um, and there's probably you know, a multitude of reasons why that was. And I, I, but I do think seeing the others eating played a big role in that. And, mm. and you know, that um, it was kind of like that, uh, that, that experiment where they have the, the bowls of soup and they can mm. either drain them or fill them without you knowing. And it just always felt like so, every time I turned around, someone was draining my bowl without me knowing. And I turned back around and go, oh, really? Is it, am I, I'm, I'm done? Oh, all right. I guess I'm done. Like, <laughs> yeah. um also evan with your long training sessions so like you i think you were doing what 40k some 40k long walks in, in yeah that period. yeah um so what were you fueling with during those sessions like i mean were you used to fueling typically i would imagine with gels and sports drinks in perhaps your previous type of fueling um so what were you handed with this type of eating 
Yeah. So, so as you say, like normally we'd be doing um, gels, gummies, sports drink throughout. So, you know, at that point in time, I was probably used to taking in 70 to 80 grams of carbs an hour mm. um, pretty, pretty comfortably and coming onto the high fat diet. And we knew, we knew that we didn't technically need anything like we should, that the whole point was to be able to be fueled, you know, by fat throughout the whole 40 K and that we don't need to be taking on stuff. But um, a few of us found just we our body was so used to having that that signal to mm-hmm. our stomach that I even though I wasn't necessarily running out of fuel, I just felt really hungry. Um, and so they'd put together I, Nikki Strobel had tried. He's like, oh, I, I got an idea. He's one of our chefs. And, and he's like, I got an idea. And he tried to put together a avocado gel. Oh. <laughs> and it was a disaster. It was, it was, it was a fun experiment, but it was a disaster. And so we abandoned that pretty quickly. And we just went with little like cheese strings and, um, and peanut butter cookies and stuff. And it was, it was quite a hoot, you know, walking around, um, like Burley Griffin, um, in Canberra there, just, we had four aid tables set up around the 12 and a half K loop. And you'd have like 20 or 30 race walkers. And it's the middle of summer. People are, you know, people in the hundreds are out walking around the lake themselves and, and biking around and you just had this army of race walkers with an army of staff every couple of k with coolers set up and guys eating cookies and, and all it was it was such a disaster it was it was it was brilliant i loved it um, <laughs> but the problem the biggest problem we had with the, the eating like the cheese and all that was and the peanut butter cookies were fine except on those 40k days where it was 35 degrees mm. and you're three oh. and you're two and a half three hours into a workout and you get handed a thing of cheese that okay. someone hadn't put in the cooler oh. and, <laughs> and it was just like warm cheese two and a half three hours into a workout and it was, i just i remember like doing that once and just it was not a fun experience. Um, so there, <laughs> there were a few words exchanged a few times, but, uh, yeah, definitely. We, we all felt a little bit angry on the high fat diet. And there was a few times where, um, the staff and the researchers felt the, felt the brunt of that, uh, that anger. <laughs> and how did you, so, um, how did you actually find it? You know, I guess from the start to, to the finish of the workouts, um, fueling that way, how did you, how did you feel in and perhaps give us an example like was it different um in terms of uh lower intensity longer sessions versus you know the higher intensity sessions yeah so for the most part the longer stuff or or even just the shorter easy stuff which is the the bulk of our training really uh was fine i i'd say with the 40ks the the biggest thing i felt is you know in a normal 40k when I'm sort of at the same level of fitness or preparation as I was at, at that point in time in the season, they'll start off the 40 K will start off feeling really easy for, for 20 or 25 K. And then it will, you know, 25 to 35 K it'll feel like, Oh, this is a little bit tough. And then maybe the last five K will, will just be, feel a little bit harder and I'll just be a little bit more tired. Yep. Um, fairly normal. And then on the high fat, it was kind of like from the word go, it was at that, like, Oh, this is, this is pretty tiring, like kind of moderately, like that same feeling I'd have from 25 to 35 K in a normal in a normally fueled 40 K had that feeling from the start. And it just, it never got worse. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of this like baseline level of kind of feel a bit off, but I felt the exact same way when I started as I did when I finished. Okay. And it was, so it was really strange. It was really strange getting used to that because the first week that we did it, it was like, 
when is this going to get worse? So you're, you know, you start off feeling crappy and you're like, Oh goodness, like this is going to be a long day. Like, you know, when's, you know, it's going to only get, go down from a hill from here and it didn't. And then the next week you're like, okay, well like, maybe it's going to be fine. And then by the last week it was kind of like, you knew exactly you're going to start off. You're going to feel like this, but it's fine. Cause it's not going to get any worse. So just like, you know, dig in, bare your teeth and get through it. Um, but the high intensity stuff, like those intervals, the, the 10 by one K is like just, my best workout on a supernova 10 by 1k uh when i was on carbs did that workout in 37 and a half minutes um i think my best on fat was 40 and a half oh. minutes and my worst was 42 something wow. um so just you know that is that's the difference between being uh you know a mm. elite olympic level and mm. being like a middle of the pack junior Mm. uh national like at you know type of level it was just night and day and um the really interesting thing that a lot of us found that first year because it was quite hot in Canberra and we had a couple of days where the weather broke and we had really nice weather and it cooled off and it was overcast and and temperature dropped 10 degrees we felt great you know even some of our harder sessions we could handle and we could push through but in those hotter days you know anything that brought us closer to threshold you know, cause the high fat diet kind of already narrowed that gap of how much room we had to play with, um, that if we had any sort of like heat, uh, stress that already sort of further narrowed that gap, we were completely toast. Like we could not handle that extra level of stress because the diet was putting so much stress on our systems to begin with. Did you collapse in one of your sessions? I thought I heard. Um, so Nyaki, when he did the diet in January, I think he was doing a 30 K and in Yaki is that he's you know, this very stoic, smart, amazingly hardworking, determined athlete. And, uh, he finishes this 30 K and just looks like the life's been sucked, sucked out of him. He just slumps down. You know, we, we, after all the sessions, we're doing our bloods, we're doing our lactates, our glucose, mm -hmm. our, our lack, um, our, our ketones and all that stuff. And mm -hmm. he just sort of gets that done, goes and slumps down against the 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 team van and just starts crying mm. and he was just goes he just goes i have no idea why i'm doing this <laughs> but it just you know it was just one of those workouts that it was just okay. defeating mm. you know i think that's probably the best word is there was a few and i i certainly had a few of those workouts i know um quinton from new zealand he had a couple of those workouts that just were defeating um you just kind of like questioned <laughs> you questioned who you were as an athlete Mm. on those mm. days yeah okay mm. so just, just coming back to something you were saying before so it sounds like it was generally the stuff at sort of threshold or above where it was the real struggle yeah a hundred percent um and so i i'd say like everything even the easy stuff felt like it just brought you closer to threshold yeah. um so i really think like the overwhelming feeling i had during the diet was that just i was i had way less wiggle room in terms of like going going over that limit and, and having my lactate build up and 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 suffering and stuff that just that scope that how much wiggle room i had to push was just obliterated and if i you know got even a little bit too excited in a workout i would just go right over that threshold and and, and be done um before i even knew it and it sounds like even by the third week of the study that didn't really change too much no, def like throughout the study, I'd say the only, yeah, the only reprieve we felt were those random two or three days when the weather like completely changed and, and just gave us, you know, took away that additional stress so that we could 
artificially have that wiggle room back. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. So during the study, and I've sort of seen this, uh, you tweeting about this, you know, back when the, the paper was first published, um, that you had one of the highest fat oxidation rates that's ever been measured um, at the, the post-diet um, trials at the end. Um, can you remember what the figure was that you ended up getting? I, th I think it was 1.57 grams per minute. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say that 1.7 or 1.57 1. or 1.58, I think. Yeah. And I think that's been broken since by <laughs> yeah. a couple of the guys. Um, you know, it was the problem. We, we were, the, I was the first in, so I was, you know, first in, grabbed that record. And, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, some of the guys have come along, I think, and, 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 you know, recorded higher fat oxidation rates in seven days, you know, not mm. three and a half weeks fat mm. adapted, like, you know, seven less days. than seven days fat adapted, being able to show that, you know, that that ability to actually use the fat is a quick process. Yeah, for sure. And was it a bit of a shock to you when you sort of heard that figure? Uh, it, a little bit, you know, um, so, and my VO2 max on the post-test had gone up. Um, <laughs> you know, my absolute, my, my relative went, went, went quite a ways up because I think I lost two kilos um, throughout that three and a half weeks. So my, my relative VO2 max, like, you know, shot up quite a bit, but even my absolute went up a little bit. Um, so, you know, that was, that was really confounding because that didn't square with any of the actual practical tests that we did. You know, the 10 mm -hmm. K time trial was, was objectively worse. Mm -hmm. Um, our 25 K test where we do several kilometers on the treadmill at different points and, and measure our gas exchange. And, you know, it was clearly just using way more, uh, way more oxygen to do the same pace, mm -hmm. um, as I was. So I, I was like quite taken aback by, um, you know, by the fact that, oh, wow, like I, I was adapted. Like that's mm -hmm. surprising considering, um, you know, you kind of figured, okay, well, if you're burning, if the diet works and it's clearly working for me because I'm burning all this fat, mm -hmm. but I'm not getting faster. So, okay. Like that's, that seems like a dud. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was, it was interesting because I, I had to kind of like come to terms with that and, and sort of try to figure out what that actually meant. Uh, for me and, and how I thought about the diet. Mm. And so it sounds like, yeah, as you said, you know, adapted, burning more fat, uh, not only not getting faster, but not feeling better. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, so the, you mentioned that the 10 K there, can you remember what the difference in performance was like from before to afterwards? Um, yes, I can. Well, I can't, but I had my, <laughs> I, I opened up my, uh, Garmin files earlier. So <laughs> my pre-test time trial was 4058 and my post-test after, you know, four weeks, three and a half weeks of like really good training was 4125. Wow. So I lost about 30 seconds, um, and that was with three and a half weeks coming in at that point, my season was fairly under trained on that first test. So, um, you know, should have seen coming back in January when I, when I was on the high carb or on the periodized diet, I think I went from a really hot day, 43 minute pre test to, a to a 40, 20 post test, um, over that same time frame. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah. And then one of my teammates who was on the diet in in, in November as well, he, on the high fat, he went from, I think he went from, he was a world championship medalist uh, a couple months prior to this. And he went from walking 40 something on the pre-test to 52 minutes on the post. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, and was it kind of obvious, like when you, when you're doing your laps in the, the 10 K race at the end, was it kind of obvious from pretty early on in the race that not only were you, you know, potentially slower compared to your own pre-test, but you could kind of see who was on low carb and who was not? Certainly. Um, uh, just based on order alone, if someone had been blinded to, um, to what diets they were on, you, you could have probably picked out with some accuracy who was on what diet just based on finishing order. Um, I remember I was, I was trailing behind, um, uh, Brennan Reading, uh, Australian Olympian, and, and one of my best friends, I was best man at his wedding this January. And I was just like, I, oh, man, this kid's he's going to beat me. Like, he's, <laughs> damn it. Like, he's, he's, he, I'm not going to be able to catch him. And I just remember giving everything I possibly had over that last 2K, like trying to like close that gap, close that gap, close that gap. And, you know, on cards, I could, I know I could have done it. I could have <laughs> done it in like a lap. And I eventually just pipped him in the final, on the final lap. Um, but I just, I just remember thinking those like, that last mile just being like, this is, this is not going to happen. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to chase him down. He's going to get this win and I'm going to have to live. I'm going to deal with, deal with listening to him talk about beating me for, for years to come. And, um, it was a different, it was certainly a different, um, feeling in that late, late stage of the race. Like it didn't have that same, okay, a kilometer left to go really hammer it now and like drop your pace five, 10, 15 seconds. It was like, okay, like, try to just keep holding this pace till the end and that will be good. Yeah. yeah so enough. Evan, I guess now after the, after participating in that, that study and that way of eating, um, what, what have you gone back to in terms of style of eating? Are you, are you following low carb, high fat, or have you kind of handballed that off? And yeah, I'm, I'm not, um, I've tried it twice and, and I think that was enough. Um, you know, for me personally, it just, it would just be, I just don't have the yeah. self-control. Um, I, I live off of sugar. I have, I eat fruit loops for breakfast every day. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, like I, I just wouldn't be able to do it. It would just be take all the fun away from, from yeah. training. So even if there was like a small performance benefit and, you know, I think it might have a time and a place, I think going going low carb high fat in a base in your base mm -hmm. season when you're not doing those hard kilometers i, I don't think there's a, any down, downside to that like we've seen how quickly we can reverse the mm. the negative effects of yeah. it you know in a couple of days like you're back to normal and if there's even a, a modest chance that you can maintain some of those fat adaptations um you know build up the fat fat, fat yeah. oxidation in your base season mm -hmm. and then periodically go on some periodized training throughout the year to kind of like keep that, you know, keep re-upping mm -hmm. it. If that works and you can still get the best out of your, out of your carb utilization, mm -hmm. be great to go into a race knowing that you have that fat oxidate, fat oxidation if yeah. you need it. Um, uh, so I can definitely see, I can, I definitely feel like if you were to, if you had unlimited resources, unlimited time and, you know, if you could give the athletes a hundred grand to, to give up a year of their life to, <laughs> you know, to, to, to really test it out. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there like still could be something to be said for it. Um, 
but I think in the way that, that we were doing it as using it as like a, a block of training and stuff as it just wasn't working for me and um, was would have taken away way too much fun out of the sport. And did you find that you like, so it sounds like um, the majority of you, you know, your performance kind of got back on track after you, um, you know, finished, finished the study. How, how long did it take, do you think, to, to kind of get back to where you were? So in, in that November study in 2015, I remember we all went out after the study ended and uh, indulged. And I went from being 64, I went from being 64 kilos that last morning of the study to coming off the diet, um, eating a box of cookies. Um, uh, what we just had, it was, we had our big sort of kangaroo burgers and, and all that stuff dinner. Um, Louise bought like 30, 30 pizzas for everyone. She would have given um, you Hague's and chocolate. And the beers too. were flowing liberally. And we got our we got our chocolate <laughs> frogs. And and Ben, my teammate, had made this mac and cheese that I ended up coming home from the bar and and having having a little bit of it, like whatever it was, two two o'clock in the morning, and hopped on the scale. So I'd started that day at sixty four kilos, and I ended that day at seventy kilos. And uh, and the next morning, still probably feeling the effects of. Uh, of the alcohol in my yep. system felt better than I had throughout the entire time on high yeah. fat. Like it was, it's, it was genuinely like that immediate. Um, and, and 12 days later, 13 days later, something like that, I, I shattered the Canadian record PB over 50 K by, uh, like five minutes or something like that. And, and it just, you know, completely showed that underneath all that, all that, uh, slow pace and, and all that, you know, feeling terrible, there was still training going on and, and that had a benefit. And, you know, I personally think if nothing else that my three and a half weeks on the high fat diet taught me so much about just resiliency and like pushing my body through something, whether or not the actual diet has any physiological effects, I think the benefit that I got out of it was just learning that my body can do that and 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 just you know having that confidence that I okay I can I can slog through three and a half weeks of really crummy training and come out the other end and still be fit and knowing that is a real real benefit going down the line. Was that sort of a like a like a step up in performance that's got to be maintained since for you? Then was that kind of like one of those sort of steps that you take at some point in your career? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was the first 50 K where I hadn't like blown up at some point in it. And it kind of showed me that, okay, I can, I can handle this distance. And, um, it certainly gave me the confidence to, you know, to, to go into Rio, um, in 2016 and, and know that I belonged up with those front guys. Um, and, you know, allowed me to arrogantly go off the front and try to try to win the Olympic 50 K from about 20 K, <laughs> uh, which ended, uh, without a gold medal. Uh, so it didn't work. Um, you know, but you know, it gave me the confidence to, to try it at the very least. Yeah, for sure. All right. Um, so we're going to finish off now, Evan, I, I think that's been a, a really great overview of, uh, you know, how, how it all, your experience and how it all kind of worked, but we always have this bonus round at the end of our podcast <laughs> to find out a little bit more about you. So our first question, if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, what would you do? Oh, see, I tried not to think about this question because I, I knew you wanted it to be like kind of off the cuff and, and bonusy, and now I'm regretting not having come up with some witty answer. Um, 
I, I, I don't know. I, I quite enjoy my life. I, I get to, <laughs> um, I was just reminiscing. It was two years ago today, uh, that I finished up, um, as we're recording this, finished up my, uh, did a kid sports fundraiser thing for charity and, uh, and had walked 25 K a day for 25 days and, and got to use this like wacky skill of being able to walk fast and, and put it to some good use and, spoke to 10,000 school kids along the way and raised $26,000 for charity. Yeah. And, and like, awesome. it was the coolest thing I've ever done. And, and, you know, just whatever it was, whatever it would be that I would be doing. I love this idea of being able to take, like have a skill and then being able to turn around and use that skill and give back and use that skill for, for good. So, um, I don't have a good answer for you, but, uh, yeah, whatever it is, I, I love what I get to do because it's, it's allows me to sort of give back as well. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Good one. Um, anything on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Yeah, I, I, I'd like to jump out of stuff, planes <laughs> and off cliffs and stuff. I don't do it way too risk averse um, as, as an Olympian. Mm. Um, there's too many things that could could injure me and, and, and leave me um, unemployed. Um, so at this point in my life, I haven't crossed anything of, any of those off yet. But um, yeah, certainly jumping out of things is, uh, is on there. Self-imposed danger clause. Yeah. Um, now, this is a question that uh, maybe some of the runners out there are asking. You mentioned at the start that race walking is kind of running with rules. Are there days where you get up and you think, bugger the rules? I just feel like going for a run instead. Sometimes. Uh, I do some running, um, not a whole lot. I, I dabbled each year. Um, we had a, 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 we'd have a half marathon out uh, by my university. And so for the last three years in a row, I decided that was the end of the season. Uh, I'll run it. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll see what I can do as a runner. And so I wouldn't train for it. I would just kind of like maybe do three or four runs in the week before and rock up and see what I could do. And the goal became break 70 minutes. My first year I was like just under 71. The next year I was 70, 70, 30 or something like that. And, um, and in 2018, I went 69, 55. And yeah. thought, okay, I'm done with running. I don't need to. I don't need to do that ever again. Um, it was awful. It was running is so much harder than race walking. It was. I got to 13k and went, oh crap! The last time I ran this far was this race last year. This is not going to be good. Yeah. So I uh, I achieved that. Uh, re, you know, just self-imposed, mean nothing goal for myself, and that now I've hung up the uh, the running shoes uh, competitively for for a while. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Now, final question. Is there one thing that you can't live without when you're traveling to events around the world? I've started taking my pillow with me everywhere I go. And it's this like crushed memory foam thing that weighs a ton. Um, and nothing is harder than fitting that into my suitcase. Once my suitcase is already packed to the brim, like packing to come to Australia each year for, for two months. And it's always the last thing I go, Oh crap. I forgot to put the pillow in there. And the, the, the gymnastics that go on in, in my bedroom of trying to squish that squish that damn pillow in there um, is quite something. But uh, yeah, I just it's that comfort of it. it makes me feel like I'm at home. It, it gives me that little bit of um, uh, continuity and, and assurance that there's some, always going to be something that I can predict and, and, and know. And um, yeah, that makes that makes things a lot easier. Yeah, cool. That's not always the high tech gadgets, is it, that uh, <laughs> that we can't live without? Awesome. Well, 
on behalf of all of us here, Evan, thank you so much for giving up your time to speak to us today. Um, hopefully that's given people a great insight into low-carb, high-fat diets, at least, you know, the experience that you guys had with Supernova and um, the experience, I guess, when you, when you are racing at sort of threshold and above uh, as opposed to maybe some of the ultra events, which are a little bit different. So, yeah, once again, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me on. It was great to talk about this stuff and, and reminisce and, and relive some of these memories. They're very fond. Yeah. Thanks, thanks heaps and hopefully we see you back in Australia soon. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> All right. That was awesome. Thanks to having Evan Dumphy on all the way from uh, Vancouver. Um, bit, bit colder over there. Just a bit. Uh, so I think, yeah, fantastic to, to have, you know, an example of how Evan found found the diet for him and him um, and his sport um, but I think just important for us to also uh, explain that there, there are very much individual responses as um, we spoke to Louise about um, so you know it, it may be for some people it, it may you know um, be a benefit to them um, but it's like we're trying to say and one of our rants was, um, you know, there's no black and white, I guess. Um, and also just being careful when we might see in social media that, um, you know, headlines following low-carb, high-fat or seeing, you know, an athlete on a photo and they're hardly eating anything. So we think, oh, you know, that's um, what they're doing all the time. Um, and like Evan said, like often what he found is athletes are saying they're doing it, but then when he actually looks, um, you know, that it, it's not really that, that they're practicing it in, in full. Um, yeah, and also that it's it could be a sliding scale as well. Um, so I know some athletes that do use it largely, um, it's not necessarily that their calves are here all the time, you know, at this certain level. Um, they can be thinking of their racing and, and how they have responded to it and, and really um, adjust that based on, on how they're, they're responding. Um, I guess at the moment, like in, a, in some of those real elite sports, um, uh, elite athletes, I should say, um, I mean, I haven't seen a, like a whole heap, um, at least of them advertising it, I guess. But if you think of the Tour de France guys, I mean, they're using more of that periodized approach, you know. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of anyone in in the cycling world tour, um, and and you know, knowing a few people who work in that industry, I, I can't think of anyone who's um, you know gone low carb, high fat, and and you know done it for any period yeah. of time. They might have dabbled. Uh, I know a couple of people probably at the domestic level who've probably dabbled and gone backwards as a result of it unfortunately yeah. um but yeah the same like if you look at you know all the elite marathon guys if you're running less than two and a half hours uh, i can't think of a single example of someone who who runs under two and a half hours in in a race um who's who's low carb genuinely low carb high fat yeah. and the same thing with you know olympic distance triathlon i can't think of an example of any of the top pros that are mm -hmm. that are doing it over that kind of a distance yeah yeah, yeah. So yeah, and I don't, I don't think those guys trying to break the the two hour marathon are uh, are on that way of eating because as we've learned, it's it's just it's not efficient um, for those guys mm. trying to trying to do that. Yeah, and I think the main point is that you know this is not something that's just popped up in the last mm. year as some sort of novel approach that 
that might be that people just haven't discovered it yet. You know, clearly if this made you run marathons quicker or made you finish the Tour de France further up the pack, um, people would have been doing this two, three, four decades ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and everyone would be doing it now. Uh, like, why would you not do it if it made you yeah. better? Uh, and I think Louise said exactly the same thing. And I mean, that's why she got into the research in the first place is because she wanted to make her athletes yeah. better. Um, and clearly that, that hasn't happened for those sports where that is that, that high intensity component where you're working sort of at or above threshold and that's the most important part of your, your yeah. event, um, whatever, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously, you know, as you said before, Steph, with um, you know, there are other other events where you know, or, or, or other situations where it may be a perfectly appropriate uh, thing to do. You know, if you're you're going out to run a, a four and a half, five hour marathon for charity, for example, um, then yeah, that, that might be a legitimate approach to take. If you're an Ironman athlete who um, like your goal is just to to finish and enjoy yourself and, and you're not going for, you know, the, the fastest possible time, then, yeah, again. Um, and then there's probably a bit of a, a crossover somewhere where, um, you know, the benefits of, of um, you know, that, that higher yeah. carb approach versus low carb, high fat, you probably get diminishing returns and there's a point where probably it doesn't make too much difference one way or the other. Um but you know, as we as we said, uh, it's it's just so hard to study this kind of stuff. So it's almost impossible to say where that line is, and just say if you're one side of the line, do this, and if you're the other side, do that. It's it's not going to be that simple. Yeah, yeah. And I think like it'll be great, as Louise mentioned, hopefully to get a bit more of those long term um, research studies uh, underway, and also you know just to find out well, okay. Like, let's have a look at what's happening performance-wise, but let's have a look at what else is happening in the body. And there's already some stuff that's been done in that area. Um, and then also just in terms of if, if people are going to take um, that way of eating on, um, just making sure that there's, uh, they're doing it in a, in a good kind of, you know, choosing foods that are, are going to nourish their body as well. You know, um, so mm. not, um, yeah, misinterpreting um the, the way of eating. Yep, for sure. All right, well, I think that, that pretty much uh, draws us to a close and answers the question, you know, is low-carb right for me? And, yeah, I guess the answer there is it depends on your situation and, and hopefully we've been able to outline those and, and, you know, cover off the various situations that people might find themselves in. Um, so that that's all for episode 1B of The Long Munch. So we've had Louise as the scientist, Evan as the, the athlete and getting their perspectives. Um, next episode, episode 2A, will be a look at uh, sort of a follow-up question to this, which is how should I feel for my, um, my long training sessions? Uh, and we've got a, a researcher who... Uh, coined a very famous term, fuel for the work required, and we're going to talk to him about that uh, and, and about the concept of you know, adjusting your fueling for you know, the type of training that you're doing. Uh, and then we'll have, obviously, an athlete guest uh, to talk about that as well. So uh, really looking forward to that, Steph. But I guess if anyone else has a particular question that you'd like answered on the podcast, feel free to hit us up on social media at The Long Munch, either on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. We'd be really happy to hear from you if you've got questions about this episode uh, or if you have a, yeah, a specific question that, that you know, you've been... Uh, debating with your, your fellow athletes um, or, or just never quite sure about, um, yeah, we'll be, be happy to answer answer that kind of a question. That's exactly what we're about on this podcast. So, yeah, be great. Awesome. Looking forward to the next podcast. So we'll, we'll see all of you then. Bye.
Will do. See you then.